I am Andrew Dowdy, and this is the midweek episode of the High Motor Podcast, the pre-week five college football episode of the High Motor Podcast. Ross Dellinger of Sports Illustrated, he's going to join me here in a bit, as will Chase Kitty to run down the best, the smartest week five bets, including that weekly 2K parlay. Hey, if you didn't catch Sunday's post-week four episode, Stephen Lassen, Athlon Sports, and I discussed Harbaugh replacements because if we're going to have a Harbaugh hot seat discussion, we need to have a Harbaugh replacement discussion too. Also, we talked about the flawed replay system being exposed again in that Cal Ole Miss game, Justin Wilcox uh, and Cal. We also talked about gauging week four overreaction. All right, let's get Ross on the blower and fire up this midweek episode of the High Motor Podcast. Sports Illustrated's Ross Dellinger on the High Motor Podcast. And Ross, in your one-month roundup you published on Sports Illustrated after week four, you have the playoff field right now. And you noted that Georgia, Alabama, and LSU are three of the top four teams in the country. But as you also said, the committee just isn't putting three SEC teams in the field. Not now if they were to meet in September, not in November, not you know, the final rankings in early December. So what you did is took out Georgia. And my question for you is, do you think that LSU is a better team than Georgia right now? Or do you just believe that LSU's path is more advantageous with all those home games, the huge opportunity in Tuscaloosa for them just to reach the playoff. They have a better chance than Florida, or excuse me, better chance than Georgia. Well, to me, you know, when I did my list, it wasn't necessarily a prediction of the playoff. It was like right now, you know, if the season ended today, who are the best, the best four, or or most most worthy four? And I, I thought um, going on the road for LSU and beating Texas. In just the way LSU's looked, also going on the road at Vanderbilt, they both went on the road at Vanderbilt. Uh, and you can look at the scores and compare them. It was, you know, LSU and Georgia are very different teams. I think I think L- Georgia is the team that LSU used to be, uh, the way they play. Uh, and LSU is, um, you know, doing the spread and throwing the ball around and eating, allowing, a po- and allowing a decent amount of points defensively, too. So that was a tough call. You know, Oklahoma versus Putting in Oklahoma or putting in Ohio State and putting in LSU or putting in Georgia to me were the toughest calls to make um, as far as who the best four are. Uh, but, you know, ultimately I think LSU's win over Texas was just so big uh, and significant um, that I think they get denied right now. You spent a ton of time on the LSU program down there in Louisiana. Let me ask you, this is the best LSU team since when? Is it the best LSU team since 2011, or do you think 2012-2013, do we go all the way back to 2011? Yeah, the 2012 team was actually really, really good. Um, and they had they were, they were undefeated playing Alabama, and they allowed the screen, notorious screen pass with like a minute left to lose that game. A lot of people think if they had beaten Alabama, they roll and they end up, you know, uh, playing for a championship. So that was a pretty good team. And you got in that, that had Mettenberger on it at quarterback. Um, so it, there might be some comparison there. I mean, the way they play is no comparison. I mean, this one play, this one plays, you know, um, the way, the way this team plays as far as like throwing the football offensively scoring the points, it's it's tough to compare any LSU team ever to that. I, you'd have to go back, and I think some of the records right now are going back to 2001 um, when Nick Saban's second team, they had Rohan Davey and, um, oh gosh, I can't remember the receiver's name they had. Um, 
but they would they were chucking the ball around. So as far as how they play, you have to go back to at least. 2001, but what's going to end up happening by the end of the year is this is going to probably be the best LSU offense in the history of the program. Over the summer, I, I did a lot of breakdowns of playoff rankings over the uh, the first five years, looking for trends and different things. And you know, it's been several years now since a team started low in the playoff rankings. Those first ones, usually that first week in November, unless I'm missing somebody here, it really goes back to 2015 when Oklahoma was 15 in the first rankings and then climbed into the field. That was the last time a team really climbed that far uh, from those first rankings into the final field. And we're still, yeah, we're still what five, six weeks away from the first playoff rankings. But do you see anybody? who could be ranked outside of the top 10 in those first rankings like Oklahoma was back in 2015, uh, five weeks from now, but could wind up either in the field or we could be talking about them in real contention uh, come those final weeks. Well, I think Wisconsin is probably one. You know, they started the season preseason-wise and even up until that win over Michigan outside of the top 10. Um, they might have been, even been outside of the top 15 as far as preseason rankings. So Wisconsin is certainly a team that I could see making that move, you know, and, uh, and, and maybe getting a playoff. And they'll, they'll, you know, if they, if they finish undefeated, they'll have done quite well because they'll have to have gone to Ohio State and won, um, and they'll have had to beat Ohio State in the Big Ten championship game. So they've got a really difficult um, road ahead. And Iowa, I, think they play, I believe they play Iowa uh, as well. And um, so – it's uh they've got they've got a tough path but yeah they would probably be the one that I can think of right now uh that I could see you know getting in and in um before some of the losses I would have said it's probably one of those Pac-12 teams like in Oregon who started preseason outside the, just outside the top 10 but they lost to Auburn but I still think there might be a little hope that Oregon might get in so they could be one as well now, with the, you talk about Oregon getting in, and, and on, on Sunday's podcast, Stephen Lass from Mathon Sports, I had him on. We talked about Cal, um, you know, whether or not you think they're a playoff contender. I mean, a lot of people don't, but at 4-0 being the only undefeated team in the Pac-12, they're kind of carrying a little bit of the Pac-12's water, again, regardless of what you think of them. I mean, do you, for an example, you said Oregon a one loss. I guess, how do you see that fitting? Does that just have to be complete chaos where SEC teams start just beating up on each other? Maybe Wisconsin goes uh, and beats Ohio State but then loses to Ohio State in the Big Ten championship game. I guess, how do you even see that happening? Where a one-loss Oregon were to even get a shot? Yeah, it would have to be the probably the latter, as you mentioned there. Uh, and it could happen. You know, Wisconsin and Ohio State could split their two games, potentially. Um, and if that happens... That's where you can sneak in. If Oregon had, you know, Oregon outplayed Auburn in the opener. I mean, I was there. I, I covered the game, and they were the better team. I, I, I think they're the better team. I do. Uh, but, you know, Auburn had some credit Auburn's defense in the second half. and They had some great play down the stretch, some big plays made offensively on that last drive. And, and if Auburn keeps winning, and that'll be a not, not so bad of a loss for Oregon. Um, and so you, you couple that with if Oregon runs the table and they've got some tough ones. I mean, I know the Pac-12 is not any kind of world beaters, but they've got a lot of tough road games, Oregon does, um, left on the Pac-12. I think they go – they already went to Stanford, but I think they go to um, to um, uh, Washington, I believe, and they might even go to Washington State. I think they also go to USC. They're, they have – if they go undefeated – and win the Pac-12 championship in her 12-1 with an only loss to Auburn uh, on a neutral site in a game they 
probably should have won and barely lost in the last second. I, I think they were very much worthy of getting that four seed. Ross, I want to go to the, to the group of five. Uh, back to Louisiana, I want to ask you about Willie Fritz. So Tulane 3-1 and one after last week's win over Houston. Uh, he's increased his win total at Tulane each of his first three years. He appears to have a real shot of doing that again uh, in year four if they can get to eight wins. Do you think that Willie Fritz is somebody who, I mean, he doesn't get a whole lot of attention. I don't know if that's because of age, but that's because he hasn't had that power five shot yet. But do you think he's going to continue climbing the ladder and get that power five shot? And if so, where could you see Willie Fritz fitting in the power five? Willie is, you know, the ultimate um, journeyman coach. Uh, It's incredible when you look at his resume. A lot of the coaches in college football right now and in FBS, their resumes are fairly similar. They you know, they started at uh, at the, the college level as an assistant. Then they were a coordinator, and now they're, you know, a head coach. Some of them maybe coached a little high school here and there. Willie's climb is really something. It is from high school to junior college to Division two to FCS and now to FBS. It is, it is an unusual journey. And, yeah, I think his age has something to do with why he's not talked about. Uh, I think he's around, I don't know, late 50s, around 60 maybe. Um, uh, but, you know, and I think he's just unusual um, in that, in his journey. So he hasn't, it's not like he hasn't worked a lot in the FBS. He's, he was a head coach at F, F, FCS level and a head coach at the Division II level in JUCO. Uh, he had a great run as junior college coach in Kansas for years. Um and so it's it's the connections just maybe aren't there as much as a a normal coach who had, who, who works at all these FBS teams. But certainly, if he if he continues to win at Tulane, um, you know I'm sure he will he'll be somebody that people would will think about. You know um, the problem is again, yeah, as you mentioned earlier, you know his age. You know, and does he even want that? I don't. I, his age is he comfortable in New Orleans? You know, coaching Tulane. I don't. I don't know if he really. Uh, wants to leave. I guess it has to be a, a really good situation. But but um, I, I certainly he he's a great football coach. He's got a a really good reputation as being a really really good football coach. Everywhere he's been on every level, uh, he's had success. Yeah, you nailed that ballpark. He's 59 years old. You've done a lot of reporting. You just wrote a great story a few weeks ago on the whole LSU search, Tom Herman, and all those pieces fitting together. And I mean, you've covered enough coaching search and tough talked to enough ads. How often does age come up as a negative factor? I mean, how often are, are ADs talking to their, their university presidents and their big donors and the leadership council, whoever, and they're looking at a guy and saying, I don't know, he's 58, 57, in this case, 59 years old. We just can't do that. We want a guy being here for 15 years, even though we both know that's probably unrealistic. Guys just don't stay at programs for 15 years very often. So how often does that come up that you're aware of where, where they're looking at an age like Willie Fritz and saying, I don't know, Willie Fritz, 59 years old, that's a little bit too steep for us. I think you know nowadays uh, there is a push for for two things: um, offensive coaches with with new snazzy schemes, and usually those coaches are young. And we're seeing really really young coaches get hired, not just at the head coaching level, but at the um, coordinator level. Uh, we we see a great example, a couple of good examples going on. Down at LSU with Joe Brady hired from the Saints. He's 29 or he turned 30 like earlier this week, I believe. So he, um, 30 years old and he's basically the pass game coordinator who overhauled LSU's offense. Uh, 
So you look at Graham Harold, I think he's 33 or 34 as offensive coordinator at USC. And, of course, you know, Lincoln Riley is 30, I don't know, 6, 37, head coach at Oklahoma when he was in his mid-30s. You know, we're seeing younger and younger and more offensive-minded. That seems to be kind of the theme. So these older coaches for so long had, uh, I think, had trouble, you know. But all of a sudden, lately – We've obviously seen a spike in some of the older coaches that have come back, you know, Les Miles, Mac Brown, Herm Edwards. Um, so it's funny how it, it, it's kind of come back around to where some of these schools do want older coaches. So I think there is a market for it. I think there is a market for a guy like Willie. It's just, it's going to be harder. Um, he, he's going to have stiffer competition. You know, he, if he's out there um, being pitted for a big job with Neil Brown, who's whatever, around forty or so at, at you know, in a kind of an offensive wizard, so to speak, at West Virginia, you know, Willie's probably gonna lose that battle uh with Neil Brown. So there's there's that that goes on as well. It's 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 gonna be tougher for him, but it doesn't mean it can happen. You've run through a lot of coaches, and um, in terms of, I think a lot of people are kind of surprised that maybe Scott Frost hasn't gotten out to as quick of a start as a lot of people thought, whether or not those were realistic expectations or not. A lot of people surprised what Chip Kelly's doing uh, at UCLA, minus the 32-point comeback in Pullman. So let me ask you, what program right now are you most surprised that the coach isn't winning more there? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, Nebraska, I guess Scott Frost, you know, I mean, they're 3-1 right now, but they had that the terrible loss to Colorado. So that was, that was a little surprising. You know, though, what coach actually surprises me that I expected a little more for his team in his, I think it's his fourth or fifth year is at South Carolina with Will Muschamp. They're one and three right now. Um, you know, I know they lost their quarterback, uh, but I just, over his entire tenure, I think I expected a little more. That's that one kind of sticks out as somebody um, that I thought would be, have his program, in a little better situation in year, whatever it is, year four or five for him. Do you get a feeling that Muschamp is, is fighting for his – I know you don't like to talk about hot seat in September. You've made that very clear in articles and tweets. But do you feel like that Muschamp might be fighting for his job this early, even with that huge buyout? Yeah. Um, how do you know what his buyout is? But it, it's certainly something that's, I, I think, there, yeah. You know, um, I was talking to another national writer over the weekend about that. And his response was, well, what do you do, though, if you're South Carolina? Who do you hire? I mean, you know, like you're, you're limited. You're, you're, you're in, a, in a state with the best, potentially, arguably, the best college football program and coach in the nation and maybe in, in, in history go down as, as one of the top coaches in Dabo Swinney and Clemson. You have a very small in-state recruiting um, batch, really, in a lot of ways. So – um, and then you're competing in the SEC. So it's a tough job. And I don't know, you know, if you can every now and then catch that eight non-win season, that's pretty good. And maybe Will um, is the guy to do that with, you know. So I don't know what they do there. But for sure, it feels like that, you know, his seat's a little warm. That's just on the outsider. That's certainly how it feels. That's Ross Dellinger, Sports Illustrated, before week five. Are you staying put this weekend, or are you traveling again? Oh, I'm, uh, I got kind of a home game. Uh, Penn State is coming to Maryland, which is about a 25-minute metro ride from my house is College Park. So I'll be able to, to, to see. That's a Friday night game, Penn State and Maryland. Then I'll be home on Saturday. Really quickly, what are the chances the Terps pull off the upset up there? 
Well, I would have said it much higher before they went to Temple and lost. You know, they looked really good at home against Syracuse, but I just can't see it happening. Um, I, I, you know, Penn State's defense, I think, is too tough. All right, Ross. Thanks a lot for the time. Uh, take care. Enjoy that one up in College Park this weekend. Thanks. It is stupid, meaningless, hypothetical week on the High Motor Podcast, and nobody does stupid or meaningless better than Chase Kitty, Chase Kitty of Richmond, VA. So, Chase, thanks for calling into the show today. Let me ask you this. You get one game this week to put the whole Chase Kitty nest egg on. You have to take a line, not just a money line bet. You get one game to put it all on this week. So what college football line, FBS only, I know you have some good reads on FCS games, Every week, and that'll be part of the 2K parlay we'll talk about here in a little bit. But, FBS for this one, what line do you feel the best about if you had to put everything down this weekend, week five? Well, first of all, let me just say I would never advise doing this ever. (laughs) Uh, But, to play along with the question, I have sort of a couple of unconventional answers for this this week. Uh, I really like Charlotte, which is a sentence I don't think I could have fathomed saying, like, at any point in the last five years, because Charlotte has just been abysmal. Even you know, last year we went out of our way to bet Charlotte in the column, uh, but I, I like them a lot this week. I, I think you know they have a new coaching staff in there that's done really well. They got just absolutely crapped on by Clemson last week, which is understandable because Clemson does that to everybody. But throughout the rest of September, they've actually been pretty good. They've won some games. They've been super competitive. You know, they've been listless on offense for the program's entire existence. They actually look like they have a pretty good offense now. So I like them at home as a straight-up pick against Florida Atlantic, which has not looked very good this year. I think Charlotte's a great bet. What's the line? What's the money line on that game? Minus, what, 250-300? Oh, it's a pick, so it's minus one. Oh, it's a pick? Yeah. Oh, so you're putting, what, 10, 20 grand down on Charlotte. That's the nest egg yeah. bet. All, all 20,000, yeah. This is something that we've talked about before when you've, we've been on the show and, and just offline. Teams coming off of a bye week. And I know you've mentioned it, but I just want to ask you, what is, do you have a, a, a flat strategy for betting on or betting against teams coming off of a bye week? I think in certain spots, it's great. I think in other spots, it's a little overrated. Uh, first of all, everybody knows about the bye. It's one of those things where you bring it up, you sound smart. You're like, oh, they're coming off a bye. Yeah, extra week of prep. But in reality, you know, everybody knows for that when Vegas sets a line, they account for it. You know, it's built into the value. And then it's an extra interesting sort of wrinkle this year because this is one of those funky years in college football that happens every six, seven, or eight years where there's an extra week on the schedule. So a lot of teams where they might only have one or two by weeks, now they've got two or three. So like we, we've got, uh, yeah, I, I had, uh, I got a game written down in my notes and I'm not going to remember what it is, but there's a big time game this week. Uh, it's top 25 game, I think, where both teams are coming off a bye. And it seems like that it's been happening every week throughout the season, even though the season's only four weeks old. You know, like Iowa State played on August 31st and then they had a bye the next week in the second week of the season. Well, that's what, I mean, Michigan-Wisconsin, we talked about that. They were both coming off of a bye that last week. So how do you, we're not going to talk about that game that much because it already happened, but yeah, how do you approach that where it's even now? Does that change your betting at all, or does it kind of just wipe each other out? Or are there numbers that you have that suggest that, you know, Jim Harbaugh teams, they yeah, they suck in big games on the road, but they suck even more when they're playing against a team against a bye. How many, I guess, what, do you have numbers on that that you can share? I think it's just a case-by-case basis. 
Like, I, I'll give you an example of one that I really liked. Last week, one of my favorite bets, and I, I wish I had put it in the column, but I just, I didn't, was Utah State at San Diego State. And if you got it early in the week, Utah State was only laying three. And Utah State is probably one of the five best G5 programs. And San Diego State is a little overvalued because they are, uh, you know, they're a known commodity, but they're not that great this year. So they're at home and they're catching a couple of points against one of the best G5 teams this year. And I just love Utah State in that spot. And what really solidified it for me is they were coming off a bye. So I already liked them and they had the extra week of prep and San Diego State didn't. I slammed Utah State last week late at night. And that ended up being a great pick for me, not just because they covered, but because a lot of the rest of my picks last week didn't do so hot. It was sort of my first down week of the year. Uh, so Utah State really helped me recover a lot of money. But there are other spots where either both, to talk about this year specifically, both teams are coming off a buy, so that value is kind of nullified. Or more likely, a team is coming off a buy and it looks good because it has that extra week of prep, but Vegas knows they have that extra week of prep and maybe the line is just a little bit less valuable. They, they've baked in sort of an extra juice that you're going to have to pay on the spread or on the on the on the juice if you know if you want to bet that team talking about case by case basis before we jumped on here you talked about not making assumptions not getting into the dangerous games the example that you used was uh like Kent State everyone kind of knows that Kent State uh, ever since um Daryl Hazel left Kent State hasn't really done anything people just if you know college football enough, you know that Kent State, it hasn't been good. Um, regardless of what we think of Sean Lewis or not, they're probably not going to be good this year coming into the season. That, you know, they get smashed in their first few games here. But what type of danger can you get into if, if you're casually not even watching the Kent State games, like you had mentioned, then you start betting on them, thinking, you know what, Kent State just sucks. I'm going to take everything against Kent State. How can that get you into trouble? Yeah, so what we're talking about here is sort of the evolution of teams and not staying in your lane for the entire duration of the college football season, right? I gave the Kent State example because I think Kent State is, is it's pretty well known that they're not all that great of a team. And I think there's probably a lot of betters that come in, sort of casual betters that come into the season in September and go, all right, I'm just going to bet against Kent State because I know they're playing Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, like all these big programs. They're not very good. They're going to lose a lot and they're going to lose big. And maybe you make some money in September, right? Kent State isn't very good and they did get blown out by those teams that they played and they did fail to cover a lot of spreads. So you maybe are a little bit up on your bankroll right now. But if you go through the whole rest of the season with that same mentality of I'm going to bet on X team because I know they're good. I'm going to bet against X team because I know they're bad. You're going to end up in the red. Uh, you have to make adjustments. I think another example I gave you privately offline was it's kind of like the NBA player that we know they're good, but what adjustment can you make once you get to the playoffs to really keep your game at an, at a good level? James Harden's kind of the great example of this incredible regular season player. But once he gets to the playoffs, I, I wonder if his style of play really translates to the playoffs. I don't want to get us off into an NBA tangent. But that's sort of the analogy that I think works here. You got to be really careful when the calendar turns from September to October about falling into habits and betting on those same teams because otherwise you might end up losing the money that you made. So what are the, or actually quickly, I looked at the Kent State schedule. I know that there's maybe like one Kent State fan that's listening now that's going to get all pissed off at us because they ended it's up probably beating. My cousin. Yeah, they, they beat Kennesaw State 
sorry, I said they got blasted in their first few, and then they did blast Bowling Green. They got hammered by Auburn, lost by uh, 23 to Arizona State. Sorry to you, want Kent State fans. So, Chase, what are the warning signs of that? Or, again, is it just a case-by-case basis? You, uh, you said when the calendar turns to October, you need to start looking at it? Or how, how can you tell which team you shouldn't be making assumptions on? Well, if you track point spreads and you track ATS records, that's a great place to start. I talked a little bit about Utah State and how I how I bet big on them last Saturday. So this is a great example. Last Saturday, Utah State was a three-point favorite coming off a bye against San Diego State. A lot of professionals backed it, and you know people that sort of follow in hindsight how bets turn out, they saw that Utah State was a big moneymaker for some professionals. So now... We go from last week where Utah State was sort of a modest favorite. They were sort of flying under the radar. This week, they opened as a 21.5-point favorite, and that's already been bet up to 24, which is a huge line movement for this early in the week. Now, that makes me think that it's probably more professionals betting on it, but that's a different conversation. The point is, Utah State is now going to get blasted the next couple weeks against the spread, and if you're just going in blind betting because you know that they're a good team and maybe there's there could have been some value on them, that value has been eroded. You know, the the longer into the season you keep betting those known September commodities, the more you're likely to end up losing the money you've already made. Chase, let's talk 2K parlay. If you haven't listened to the show or you haven't seen Chase's 2K parlay, every week during the, every week during the, the football season he'll pick, you know, 14, 15, 16 games, throw $5 on it, try to win $2,000. Hit it a couple times last year. You haven't hit it yet this year, have you? No. Came close last week. I think you said you hit 13 or 14 of maybe 15 or 16. So this week, uh, I'm going to read them off just like I did last week really quickly. If you don't catch them, which you probably won't, go to Twitter, at Chase A. Kitty. Uh, send him a tweet, send him a message. He will give those to you. He will also give you betting tips. So this is $5 to win $2,599. And 95 cents. So it's a 2K parlay quickly. The And this is NFL, college, uh, both FCS and FBS usually. Ravens money line, Colts money line, Central Michigan, Western Michigan under 59.5, Wake money line, Tampa money line, Wyoming money line, Indiana plus 14, Clemson minus 26.5, South Carolina money line, TCU money line. You mentioned Charlotte. Uh, before feeling really good about that FAU at home, you have Charlotte as the pick money line, Old Dominion money line, North Texas money line, Washington money line, Harvard money line, James Madison money line, Villanova money line. Again, if you did not catch all those, go to Twitter at Chase A. Kitty. He will give those to you. So, I, Chase, I asked you this same question last week. And this 2K parlay, I think it's bigger with 17 games. Last week, I think you had 15 or 16. So which of these 17 games do you feel the worst about? So if somebody is looking maybe for a nice parlay opportunity, they don't want to play the full 17 to maybe increase their odds a little bit, put down five to win $700,000, $800,000. Which two or three of these games maybe could they wipe out and still feel really good about their parlay shot? Well, the first thing I would get rid of uh, is probably the Clemson line. Uh, Clemson, I feel like we all know what Clemson is, and so that, you know I don't I don't have to have any caveats there. But anytime you're laying almost four touchdowns on the road, that's something you should be a little cautious about. So even though I think Clemson's probably in good shape, excuse me, uh, probably in good shape there, I would probably take that out first. I would also maybe think about losing the Indiana plus 14. And that's less about the fact that I'm not confident in that bet and more about the fact that I'm not sure 
what Michigan State is right now. Uh, you and I talked a little bit. I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. You and I talked a little bit last week about Northwestern Michigan State and how Northwestern was catching almost 10 points at home. And Michigan State comes out. And you know, that's that was a trap line that you could see a mile away. And I still bet it anyway. And I still lost. It, you know? <laughs> Uh, but it's also one of those games, and we kind of talked about it a little bit. You said there's going to be, you know, those typical ugly Big Ten games. And yeah, Michigan State's offense actually looked pretty decent in that game after completely shitting the bet against Arizona State. But going into it, I knew I wasn't going to put any stock in that game, no matter what happened during the game. I don't even know why I watched it, because I knew I wasn't going to put any stock into the game during it. And then after it, I still said to myself, I'm not putting any stock into this game. So that's why I was kind of surprised that you were betting it. From my perspective, I wouldn't have cared what happened on either side. It's just one of those games that I don't even care what happens, how it happens. I'm putting zero stock into that type of game because I kind of knew how it was going to go. Even though I was surprised that Michigan State's offense looked that good, I still knew kind of generally the feel and the flow of the game where I didn't really care what happened. It was a trap line in that it made no sense. And whenever you see a line where you're like, what the hell is going on there? You usually want to bet the other way. But it was sort of a pro forma sharp bet because it was a home dog catching 10 points that historically, you know, recent history has played very well against that team. So you almost had to bet it. It was, it was almost the only side you could take. And, and I think this is, this is one of the most important things to keep in mind if you're somebody that plays the 2K parlay. You know, we can feel great about every single bet individually. The amount of luck you have to have to hit a 17-team parlay, even if you're heavily betting a lot of money lines like I do in these things, you have to be so lucky that it, it you almost don't even want to overanalyze something when you're putting this together. There are certain things I look for, certain markers. There's certain types of value that I like specifically when I'm building these versus picking a, a straight bet. But at the end of the day, I kind of just roll with stuff I have a good feeling on that looks like it could be right because you have to be so lucky to hit a 17-team parlay. You already have to have so many things going for you. If you get too granular, you're almost missing the point on it. So you're you're totally right about that Michigan State line. that There was almost a, a, a forget-about-this-game quality to it. But from a gambling standpoint, if you're giving me a 10-point home underdog with recent historical success i'm gonna take it every single time even if it looks like it could be a trap line i feel like we need to up the stakes if you hit the 2k parlay again i think we need to bump it to like a 4 or a 5k parlay is that fair um it may from a from a hey let's let's have a good time kind of standpoint maybe first of all if you hit if we hit one of these you know we're banging our head into a brick wall every week for 12 or 14 weeks Every time we're doing this, with the understanding that we're probably going to just burn fifty or sixty dollars by the end of the season, but it's kind of like fantasy football. Like if you win one time, like one year, you're good for six, seven, eight years. If you, I mean, you won this twice last year, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's over yeah. four thousand dollars, and you're paying five dollars a week for even if it's fifteen weeks, that's sixty bucks. Like you're good for your entire lifetime. This is just this is house money, Chase. It is, and but. You know, the, the temptation to increase that bet is, is sort of everything that's wrong about gambling, right? Like, it's a controlled bet. I know walking in the door, the expectation is I am lighting a $5 bill on fire. Like, it, it, it's never going to hit. And then when it does, it's awesome. But you, you have to understand that you're basically just burning this $5 for no reason at all. That it's, it's such an absurd concept that, <laughs> that you're just, 
like historically, professionally, you're better off not participating at all. But it's a fun thing. This isn't a real thing. This isn't I'm trying to make money. This is a yeah, let's have fun with something. So it's less about the the ROI and more about just the pure stupidity of it. Right. I think you mentioned this to me last year uh, before we go here. Mentioned that you know you could go 15 years without hitting this. I think you hit it twice, like in a period uh, of five weeks. All right. Let's call it. I will be back on Sunday, this Sunday, September 29th, on the High Motor Podcast, wrapping up Week Five, looking ahead to Week Six, and then you, sir, Chase Kitty, and another guest will be back on Wednesday. That is what October second, Wednesday, October second. Again, if you didn't catch all. All those 2K parlay picks, you just want general advice, slide into Chase's DMs at Chase A. Kitty. I am at A. Dowdy 88. The pod is at High Motor Pod. Thank you to you all for dropping by the midweek episode for week five. I am Andrew Dowdy, and this is the High Motor Podcast. Oh